Shabbat Shalom. This is the sixth lesson in the study of Revelation. And we left off last week with the coronation of King Messiah. And there was a scroll with seven seals that needed to be opened. But no one was found worthy to open the scroll. So we're going to go back and we're going to kind of repeat that a little bit. We'll go to verse 2 and it says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So again, we have this scroll and it has seven seals written on the front and on the back, which can only mean that it's a complete scroll. Oddly enough, scrolls are not written on both sides, but only on one side. But this scroll, because it's written on front and back, it indicates that it's full. It has seven seals, meaning that it's complete. And also, because of the seven, the number seven nearly always means complete. And we determined that the scroll is the Torah, or what we call the law. And we know this because at this time, Yeshua is being coronated as king. And each king in Israel, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, was given a copy of the Torah from the priests, and then he was to copy a scroll for himself so that he would be able to rule the land according to the instructions of God, according to the commands of God. So there will be judgments made from within the pages of this scroll and the laws of the Torah. They are the terms of the judgment he's going to make. And we call the Torah law. However, you have to understand the Torah is much more than law, the law of God. The Torah also contains the history of the people of God contained within its pages. The Torah contains the history of the people of God from creation to the crossing of the Jordan River. This scroll is no different. Remember, we looked at the book of Enoch, and it speaks of such a scroll as well. Remember, Enoch is not scripture, but it was read by the first century believers, and so it tells us something of what was thought at that time. Not scripture, but it does reveal what was thought. And so it says, In those days I saw him, the antecedent of time, while he was sitting upon the throne of his glory, and the scroll of the living ones were opened before him. So Enoch was not the only one who wrote about these scrolls containing the righteous, the names of the righteous. This was common thought in the first century. Remember, we spoke about how the trumpet blasts and the gates of heaven opening. These people would have looked at that and they would have thought of Rosh Hashanah or the Feast of Trumpets because that was the expected time of the start of the day of the Lord. Well, there's a tradition about the books being opened at this time as well. And again, this is in scripture, but it definitely tells us what they thought of this. Rabbi Yohanan said, Three scrolls are opened on Rosh Hashanah before the Holy One, blessed be he. One of the holy wicked people, one of the holy righteous people, and one of the middling people, whose good and bad deeds are equally balanced. The holy righteous people are immediately written and sealed for life. The holy wicked people are immediately written and sealed for death. And the middling people are left with their judgment suspended from Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur for the fate, their fate remaining undecided. If they merit the good deeds and good mitzvot that they perform during this period, they are written for life. If not, so their merit, they are written for death. And so again, we get this idea at the start of the day of the Lord, the scroll is opened and judgment begins. 
We know this as probably more plainly stated as the Lamb's book of life. But Daniel speaks of it as well. Daniel says this in chapter 12, verse 4. But you, Daniel, come close up the words and seal the scroll until the time of the end. And notice that Daniel seals the scroll until the end. The end of what? The end of the present evil age when Messiah will again open the scroll. Now, Yohanan spoke of three books being open. However, I believe that it is one scroll because that's what's spoken of here in Revelation. And what the scroll contains is the names of the living ones, the righteous, as well as the judgment of those who are not. And this is the scroll of the messianic redemption. It contains the work of Messiah, the salvation brought forth by the sacrifice of Messiah, along with the redemption and Yeshua's kingdom on earth. The wicked must be removed. So Daniel then says of the scrolls in chapter 7, he says, A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the scrolls were open. And so we can see this was common thought. It's scripture that there were going to be scrolls open or a scroll open at the end of days. And uh, we call it the Lamb's scroll of life or book of life. And so again, we have a good idea of the scroll. So why does John weep? Because there's no one to open the scroll? It's because everything depends on this scroll being opened. It's the measure of the judgment. It's the book of the righteous. If it's the book of the righteous only, then those not on its pages are not forgiven sinners. They are the wicked, and we'll speak of their judgment later. If it contains the righteous and the wicked, again, the righteous are given life with Yeshua, and the wicked are given the same fate as the one they followed through life, the adversary of God. And this judgment is the very thing the souls of the righteous that we're going to read about later in chapter 6 cry for from beneath the altar. They're crying for vindication. They were slain for the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And who were they slain by? Well, we'll find out in a little while. So what is on its pages are the living ones. It also contains the reward of the righteous and the mercy of God. It is the Torah and it is the messianic redemption. Everything depends on the contents of this scroll being revealed in its truest sense, and that's really important, in its truest sense. The other thing about the scroll is that all of the kings of Israel were, like I said, were to receive a copy of the Torah from the priest, and then they were to write a copy for themselves. And so what we're seeing here, again, is the coronation of King Messiah. That's what we're going to focus on tonight because it's so plainly stated in this chapter. The only one who can take the scroll is the king, and the king is the one who brought about the redemption of those written on its pages. And so John is weeping because no one can open the scroll. All he sees is living creatures and angels and the 24 elders of all of those, no one was worthy to open the scroll. And then we read in chapter 5, verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so we have to understand the titles here what's being seen by John. Remember, we spoke before about how every messianic title teaches about something different about the Messiah. In week one, we saw, when we looked at the Son of Man, that title teaches about judgment. He's the judge of the earth. Well, this week, we get a few more titles mentioned. And first, we get the Lion of the tribe of Judah and, the, and then the Root of David. And what do these bring to mind? Well, it should bring to mind where it's first stated in the Torah, chapter 49, in verse 9. 
and it's Jacob blessing his sons. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And so here we have a prophecy of the rulers of Israel. They'll come from Judah. So again, we're seeing, what we're seeing here is a coronation, and it is the true king of Israel. He is the one descended from Judah. And it's the first prophecy. This is a prophecy of the kings of Israel. So Jeremiah will speak in chapter 33, he, in verse 17, he says, For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor will the priests, who are the Levites, ever fail to have a man stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. So that's what we learn about David. And what do we uh, learn about the root of David? It also speaks, both of these speak of his human lineage of Messiah, the human lineage of Messiah. And it also speaks of his kingship. And this is important because it speaks of his humanity. He is the rightful king of Israel, which is exactly what is being shown here. And so this too speaks of his kingship and his humanity. And you see something here. It took a man to open the scroll. It took a man who would be the king of Israel descended through David, through the tribe of Judah, but a man, no angel could open it. The Ophanim, which we talked about last week, the seraphim, can't open it. The four living creatures, none of the elders, no one can open it because it's going to take a man to open the scroll. Human lineage, not just a man, but the one who would overcome life. It would take the man with the lineage of Judah and David it would take the true king of Israel, the son of David, and this because it's required of the kings. So now, here John is listening to angels describe the king, the ruler of Israel. And so, what do you think he'd be expecting to see? You think he'd be expecting to see a kingly figure, you know? They just said, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So he's expecting to see this awesome king, or maybe he's expecting to see... This lion, because it is a vision as well, a ferocious lion. But what does he see? Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the midst of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He's looking for a king, he lifts his eyes from weeping, and instead of a king, he sees a slaughtered lamb. He sees the Passover lamb of God. And what would have come to John's mind when he saw this? Well, he would have, John had spoken of the Passover lamb of God before. He would have thought of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant Messiah. And so what we have here is juxtaposition. We have this powerful king descended from the line of David, and we have the lamb of God. And the reason is simple. His kingship came through suffering. Yeshua is worthy to open the scroll because he descended from the right lineage. He's paid the debt for everyone living and write the righteous ones on its pages. He's the one who made them righteous and without that there would be no names written on the scroll. 
after the laws of God on the pages, it would be blank because there's no one righteous, not one, without the Lamb. And this should say volumes to us. Yeshua's kingship was one that was not conquered in the sense of we think of conquering, but it was one that was suffered for. One of Yeshua's favorite sayings is the first will be last and the last will be first. And what he's saying is that the things in the kingdom of God are not the same as they are here. It's a place that's opposite of this place. And that's no more apparent in, than in the life of Yeshua. Everyone in the first century expected Messiah to come. And while they were looking for him and longing for him and waiting for him, they thought he would come and he would remove Rome from the land. He would defeat Rome and he would set up an everlasting kingdom. And we see this all over our messianic writings. Yeshua had a huge following in Israel. And all were thinking and expecting him to be the king. And we can see this on his entry into Jerusalem where they all shout, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then after his death, they all forgot. And they doubted that he was the king and the Messiah. Even the disciples doubted. And we see this with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This doubt was because they thought the Messiah would not die in this way, but he would rule over the land. You know, the rabbis later came up with a concept of two messiahs. One who would suffer and die, and this one they called Messiah ben Joseph. And then a second who would rule, they called Messiah ben David. And this is all because they saw passages where a messiah would suffer and that's why they called him Messiah ben Joseph, because remember, Joseph suffered. And then they saw another who would rule, and they called him Messiah ben David. And here we see the truth of the matter. It was one Messiah who would do both, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, and the Lamb of God, Yeshua the Messiah. It was through his death that he was made worthy to open the scroll. He was made to suffer in this life. He was humiliated by the rulers of this present evil age in this life. But in the world to come, he's going to judge those who judged him, who doubted and did not place their confidence in him. Those who trusted, those who suffered humiliation for their faith in the word of God will be written on the pages of the scroll of the living ones that he's about to open. And so will come the true saying, the first will be last and the last will be first. Now this would have been good news to those who were received the book of Revelation and had that book of Revelation read to them. Remember the book is written at a time of intense persecution and here they see victory comes not as we think but as God thinks. Victory comes not through the sword but through humility, suffering and self-sacrifice. And that would encourage those who were going through this very thing. And it should be an encouragement to us. And that will gain you victory. You will gain victory through humility and suffering. You know, the Greek word for witness, everybody wants to be a witness of Messiah. Well, the Greek word for witness is the same word that's used for martyr, to be a martyr for Messiah. He's telling them and us in this vision that victory will come through sacrifice, that is why we see a slaughtered lamb who was able to take the scroll. Only the lamb, the suffering servant Messiah, is the only one worthy to open the scroll. 
And if Messiah had not suffered, if Messiah had not died and rose again, then the reward of the righteous would not be possible. Those who have fallen short of, because we have fallen short of the glory of God. And it's his righteous that provides a covering for us. When God sees us now, he sees us through the lens of Yeshua and what Yeshua did, not what we did. Now, you know why Shaul would say this when we realize that he had to suffer. He says, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And now you should understand why on the Mount of Transfiguration, after God reveals him as the Son of God, on the top of that mountain, Yeshua would say to his disciples, tell no one until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And so Paul tells us that if the rulers of the age knew they could have stopped, they wouldn't have done it. They would have stopped that eternal judgment, at least temporarily, but they wouldn't have done it. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Notice the lamb has horns. Horns are always associated with power. And not only that, the horns have eyes, meaning that the lamb does not miss a thing. He knows the deeds and the hearts of men. Second Chronicles chapter 16 tells us this, For the eyes of Adonai range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts keeps covenant with him. So the eyes of Adonai searches the earth for the righteous, and by doing so, Adonai also sees those who are not. He makes distinction between the two. And notice that it says that he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Then it says he's standing in the midst of the throne. And I want you to understand that he's not on the throne yet. He's still standing in the midst of The lamb is near the throne, preparing to make his approach to be enthroned. And I find the next verse amazing. It says, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so here we have Adonai, or God, on the throne, and he gives the scroll to the lamb. And notice what is next. The living creatures and the elders all fall down on their face before the Lamb and worship the Lamb, presenting the prayers of the saints. Do you think the prayer is important? Well, I guess it is. You're going to see this in this book, just how important prayers are. The judgments that come about in this book are the result of the people of God crying out to God, and when the time is full, he will sanctify his name in the earth answering the prayers of the righteous. The bowls are filled with prayers of the righteous. They are for the coming of the kingdom. They're praying for the coming of the kingdom and God to sanctify his name, the establishing of the kingdom in in its fullness in the world. We will read other prayers from others that are praying from beneath the altar, crying out for vindication. It all begins because of the prayers of the righteous. Listen to what verse 9 says now. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests and priests to serve God and they will reign on the earth. And so again, 
They sing praise to the Lamb, and it's a new song because he was slain. And we get a little bit more information. Remember we talked about these elders in one of the weeks past. And remember I said, I don't think that these elders were former men. Because some people like to say that they were former men who have been resurrected. Not the 12 sons of Jacob. They're not the apostles. They're not the tribes, nor the church or whatever. And we see that here because it says, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests. Not us, but them. And he made them to serve our God. The King James, if you have a King James, which is taken from the text to Receptus, it does say us, but that's been rejected because of the other manuscripts. The more modern scholars have rejected it because it says them, not us. And so this is part of the coronation of King Messiah. And what we're going to read now is the acclamation of the king. He takes the throne, they proclaim him king. And where it says a new song, this is in reference to the day of the Lord, that is when the new song is going to be sung. And it's truly important. It's spoken of in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 8 through 11. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. And I think this is important for a num couple of reasons. And that we read that Adonai will not give his glory to another. And yet, here are the elders on their faces worshiping the lamb, which speaks of the fact that Yeshua says over and over, the Father and Yeshua are one. And we see this in the book of John. He says in chapter 5, verse 22, The Father does not judge anyone, but has handed over all judgment to the Son, so that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Amen, amen. I tell you, Whoever hears my word and trusts the one who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed over from death to life. And so God does not give his glory to anyone except the one who was with him at creation and purchased men for him. The one who was with him, the Son, Yeshua the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And now we can find the new song sung in the kingdom throughout Jewish literature. But here's another one. It's a midrash, just a Jewish tradition. It's not scripture, but again, it tells us what these people would have believed at the time. The harp of the world to come has ten strings, as it says, with a ten-string instrument, with a lyre, with singing accompanied by a harp. It also says, give thanks to God with a harp and with a ten-string lyre, make music to him. Sing him a new song. Play well with sounds of deep emotion. Okay, so the throne, in the throne room, they begin to sing this new song, Worthy is the Lamb. And then in verse 11 we read, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousands times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, 
glory and praise. So again, this is the acclamation of the king. And we saw this, remember, when we looked at the story of Joash last week and how they celebrated him as king in the throne room. He's standing near the throne and the heavens are proclaiming him king. Remember in the story of Joash, which is a shadow of the coronation of the king, they first sang in the throne room and then it went out and all of the people started to sing. The same is here. Here the hosts of heaven begin to sing, worthy is the lamb in acclamation of the king. And then in verse 13 we read, and then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in, in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise, honor, glory, and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fall, fell down and worshiped. And so all the earth bows, every knee bends and declares the kingship of Messiah. The elders fall down and worship. And what we're seeing exactly that everyone is going to worship the lamb. Everyone that's written in the scroll, that is, is going to worship the lamb. But every knee is going to bend, whether they're righteous or not. Every knee will bend. But the, they worship him, and at the same time, there's some who say we should not worship Yeshua. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I've heard it many times. And I usually say, I beg your pardon. Don't you believe the Bible? But there's another interesting thing here I want you to note about the temple and the coronation. And that is, not only did we have a throne at the gate of heaven. Remember, we talked about the throne at the gate when the gate opened. And it's pictured for us in the Ark of the Covenant. But we also had a throne in the temple for the king of Israel. And let's read about Solomon's throne in a Midrash, uh, another story. And we're going to find out a few things about Messiah's throne the one he will take at his coronation. You know, if you read the story of Solomon and the kingdom of Israel during his reign, it is a tremendous shadow of the reign of Messiah on earth. It's a picture God has left us of the reign of Messiah on earth. And if you want to take the time to read it, um, don't compare Solomon's behavior necessarily with that of Messiah, but the prosperity of the kingdom and the fact that all the kingdoms around the other countries came and paid homage to Solomon. Now let's read a Midrash from the legends of the Jews. It's not scripture again. I, I want to make sure everybody understands that, but it helps us understand what was the thinking of the Jewish people at that time. And Solomon sat upon the throne of the Lord as king. Is it then possible for a man to sit on the throne of God? of which it says, his throne was a flame of fire? No, but just as God rules from one end of the world to the other, also has domain over all kings, as it is said, all the kings of the earth shall give thee thanks. So did Solomon reign over the whole earth, as it said, all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon, and they brought every man his presence. For this reason, does it say, and Solomon sat upon the throne of the Lord as king. God is cloaked in splendor and glory and gave unto Solomon the splendor of royalty, as it says, and the Lord bestowed upon him such royal majesty. Concerning God's throne, it is written, as for the likeness of their faces, they had the face of a man and the face of a lion. And it says, on the borders that were between the stays were lions, oxen, and other and another verse adds, like the work of a chariot wheel. 
No evil can touch the throne of God, for it says, evil shall not sojourn with thee. And of Solomon it also says, there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. God made six heavens and resides in the seventh. On the throne of Solomon, we read, there were six steps to the throne, and while he himself sat on the seventh. And so the kings of Israel had a throne in the temple as well as what we saw pictured at the gate. And I want you to note that, this is very interesting for me anyway, there were six steps to the throne, and then Solomon sat on the seventh. And what we're reading about in the book of Revelation and in the scriptures is there's 6,000 years until the reign of Messiah. Six steps to the throne, 6,000 years, and then Messiah's kingdom comes and he takes the throne. Now, there were seven seals on the scroll and they're about to be opened as we move into chapter 6. And as they are opened, I want you to remember that this scroll contains history. We're in the day of the Lord, so this scroll is going to contain history. The Torah is the history and the laws, and the scroll of Messiah looks at history as well. If you take a futurist view, as many people do, then you're going to have a problem understanding the opening of these seals and the opening of the scroll. And the reason is, you're actually, you're thinking it's future, while the scroll is describing what has taken place in the past. Remember, it's already written. It's already sealed at this time. This is history of past events. And one more thing we need to understand as we go through chapter 6 and beyond is something that we've covered in the sermons many times. And I do this and say this because as we go through chapter 6, we're going to see the conditions of the present evil age. And let me say something. Most people, when they read the book of Revelation, they think of tribulation. And when they say tribulation, they're thinking of a seven-year period of time that we're talking about here in the day of the Lord. And they associate that period of time with the judgment of God on earth. And that is certainly what's going to happen. We'll see that in the trumpet calls, in the bowls of the wrath. We will certainly see tribulation. But let me say something. That tribulation is for the wicked only. You see, what most people fail to understand is something about judgment. When we look at the judgment of God, there are trumpets and bowls of wrath. And it will certainly cause you at least to hope for a pre-trib catching away. Because I mean anybody in their right mind would not want to go through what those things describe. If you read those things, and do not hope to be taken out some way, you need some help. Come, come to me for some counseling. Because no one in their right mind would want to have those things happen to them. It's the judgment of God on the wicked. And it should make you tremble. That's what it should do. But let me ask you this. Is the judgment of God going to affect the righteous? Are they going to suffer God's judgment the same as the wicked? Well, not if you believe the Bible. And I do believe the Bible. Listen, let's look at history of the people of God in the Torah. When God first destroyed the whole earth with a flood, he didn't destroy everyone. He saved out of the world one righteous man of the day. He didn't suffer death. Noah was the one righteous man. He found favor in God's eyes and he was saved. Now next, let's go to another passage. And this is, this is the key, really. Let's go to where three angels meet Abraham. 
and they're going to pass judgment on Sodom. And we're going to look at what God said to Abraham. And so let's go to chapter 18, verse 22. And you all know the story. Abraham pleads with God for Sodom. He asks, if there are 50 righteous people, would you not spare the city? And so let's read from verse 22. Then the men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And then Abraham approached him and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous and the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Do you see something here? We get in this passage an important truth of God. And that is God will not treat the righteous and the wicked alike. He'll never do such a thing. Abraham pleads with him for 50, then 40, then 30, and all the way down to 10. And even when there weren't 10, God still saves Lot. You see, God will not judge the righteous and the wicked alike. If he did, think about this. If he did, that wouldn't be judgment at all. If you treat the righteous and the wicked alike, then you haven't judged between them. And God will not do that. The very nature of judgment requires God to treat the righteous differently than the wicked. Now that should give you peace as we read the rest of the book of Revelation. The events of the book of Revelation are going to come in three waves of seven. The first wave of events is talked about it begins with the seven seals of the scrolls being opened again and it's historical and then there are as i mentioned things that have taken place before the scroll could be opened the judgment begins everything must take place before the scroll could be complete and now it's complete and on its pages you have those who have received messiah the seals are the history for most part the next wave is seven trumpets being sounded and a trumpet being sounded are always to indicate alarm a wake-up call the word for trumpet sound in the hebrew is terroir and it means alarm if you were one of the watchmen on the walls and you saw an army approaching you would pick up your shofar and you would sound that trumpet sound an alarm it also means wake up it's god's wake-up call those trumpets are god's wake-up call telling the people of the earth to turn and repent before final judgment begins. There's still a time, there's still time left, but you have to turn toward God. And the sad part of all of that is after all the trumpets are sounded, which is God calling out to the people of the earth for repentance, we read this, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols, Gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, idols they cannot see, nor hear, nor walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So the sad part is, even though God's calling to them and judging, sounding the trumpets, they don't repent. Then on the third wave of events are the bowls being poured out, and they are the final judgment. Verse 7 of chapter 15 says, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven ages seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And so the last wave of seven is going to be the wrath of God. And the bowls are being poured out. And this is going to be a bad time for the wicked of the earth. 
but not for the righteous because God doesn't judge the righteous and the wicked alike. So he's going to shelter them in some way. And we'll read of some of the ways as we go through the book. Okay, verse 6. The lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked and there before me was a white horse. And its rider held a bow. And he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, some people are going to tell you, and I'm sure if you've ever heard study on Revelation, you must have heard this from one study or another, that because he has a white horse and because he has a crown, uh, that this is the Messiah. This because if we go to Revelation chapter 19, we do see Messiah on a white horse. However, there's a lot of white horses. And they say it must be him because, look, he's got a crown. He's King Messiah. Well, there are different types of crowns in the Bible. And when we speak of Messiah's crown, it will be a diadem. But here we have a crown that is Stephanos. And that is a wreath, like you would see given to victors of a race. So I'm going to tell you that this is not the Messiah. And so who is this guy? Some would say that this is the false Messiah, and that may be true. Some would say that because the living creatures say, come, that it is the living creature sending the horsemen out to conquer. But who is the living creature speaking to when he says, come? He's speaking to John. He's not speaking to the horsemen. So I don't think the living creature is going to send this horseman out. The fact is, I think the horseman went out long ago and has been conquering and attempting to conquer ever since. So he has a crown of victory. Let me say that the adversary was given a crown to wear. He was given Adam's crown when he was victorious over Adam and Adam sinned. Adam was the ruler of the earth. God made him ruler over the earth and the servant of God, most high. And then he and Hava listened to the adversary and they ate the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat and his rule, authority over the earth was then given to the one he obeyed. He had a, a new ruler. Once he obeyed the adversary, he became his slave, the slave of Hasatan, the adversary of God. And he took the crown. And that is why Paul refers to the rulers of the present age. Because the ruler of the present age is Hasatan, the adversary of God. And why was he on a horse of white? Because white should indicate to us purity, right? Well, it doesn't represent his purity. But what it represents is the condition of the world at the time he took it. When he received his crown on the earth, everything was pure, innocent, and clean. But it's not going to last. And notice he's bent on conquest. He has a bow. That doesn't sound like the Messiah. What's the instrument of Messiah's conquest? We saw it last weekend today. It was his suffering, his death, his humility. And when he returns, it will not be a bow again. It will be the sword of his mouth, the word of God. This is not the Messiah. This is the spirit of the false Messiah bent on conquest. It's Pharaoh. It's Alexander the Great. It's the Caesars of Rome. It's the dictator Adolf Hitler. It's Pol Pot. It's Putin. It's those who are bent on subjugating the world and God's people, conquering and subjugating the people of God. Okay, then we have another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth 
and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. What is the next major event in the Bible after the sin of Adam in the garden? What's the next major event? Adam has two sons and Cain slays Abel. He murders his brother. And white turns to red. No more innocence in the world, folks. It says he's given power to take peace from the earth. By the time we get to Noah, we're told that the entire earth is filled with violence and corruption. This is not something that's going to happen. This is something that has happened and has been going on ever since. There's always been brother killing brother, wars and rumors of wars. And notice that the horse has gone from white to red. We have a red horse now. And this should tell us something else about what we're looking at. These riders are the result of the false messiah ruling the present evil age. And let's look at 1 Kings chapter 8. It tells us something here about white and red. It's kind of lengthy, but we'll suffer along. And so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. And let them choose for themselves. And let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood. But not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, and I will put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And then all the people said, what you say is good. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God. But do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them, prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. O Baal, answer us. They shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar they had made. And so think about this now. Here's what we have. We have all of these prophets, 450 prophets of Baal. And they're all dressed in their white robes. They're dancing around the altar asking Baal to consume the offerings, but he doesn't show up. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's God. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and they began to slash themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. But here's what I want you to see. So we have these priests. And they're wearing white robes. And they begin to slash themselves, turning things red with the blood of the prophets. That's the way of the adversary. It leads to death. What is the way of God? Isaiah 1.18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be white like wool. God purifies lives, makes them white as snow. 
God turns sin from scarlet to white. We got one more writer coming out for tonight. We're going to talk about this one more writer. And I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. And so again, this, if nothing else, should show you that we're talking about this age we live in. This is nothing that we have to wait to happen. It's the way things are right now. It's the human condition as you go through this life. You have a finite amount of time. And for many, it's made even finer by the next horseman that we're going to look at next week. But this phrase, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. A quart of wheat was equal to three quarts of barley. So either way, it was a day's wages. Barley was much cheaper than wheat. It was considered almost animal feed. And this anciently is what a day's wages would buy. The wage of the day was the sustenance for the day. And not just anciently, because what you make in this life can't be taken with you. You know, most people live from paycheck to paycheck. And not only that, how many of you know that most people, when they die, have virtually nothing left but just a pittance, maybe enough to get them buried, or they rely on their children to get them buried. It takes all they've earned over their lifetime just to live life. Most people leave life, die as poor and as naked as when they came in. And this is the way of life now. You don't have to wait for these horsemen to ride out because they rode out 6,000 years ago. And they have been trampling on mankind through this age. And we'll continue to look at the horsemen next week.